Today's preaching passage is from Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Luke 2, 1 through 7. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. This is God's word. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning to you. It's a delight to be able to gather like this on a a crisp December Sunday morning and prepare our hearts and our minds for a celebration of Christmas this year. And we have before us one of the most iconic, perhaps the most beloved of all the Christmas passages. The passage just read for us from Luke chapter 2 and verses 1 through 7. It's a wonderful passage and we want to focus on this passage this morning. But I want to begin a distance away from this passage and make our way toward it. I want to begin with uh, something that I was uh, thinking about this week in preparation for this message, a book uh, idea that came to me some 40 years ago. I remember, remember exactly when it came to me. I remember where I was when it came to me. I was sitting in the ancient forum of old Corinth in Greece. That old Roman forum had been Excavated, You can go there now and see the paver stones where the people would stand and you see this bema seat, this uh, platform about seven, eight feet high, uh, meters wide and deep. This is the platform where the orators came and addressed the people or where the, the governor would come or the judge would come and judge the cases before the city. I was sitting there in that that forum, looking across at that Bema seat, thinking about what had taken place there 1,900 years before. And I was reminded of the teaching of the Apostle Paul to the Corinthians over there in chapter uh, 1 of the book of 1 Corinthians. The Apostle Paul is addressing uh, those Corinthians. This was an arrogant crowd, proud of themselves. And he needed to remind them of who they really were. So it was in their arrogance that he uh, says to them, uh, look, there are not many of you wise according to worldly standards, not many powerful, not many of you who are of noble birth. And then he said to them this, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast 
in the presence of God. And as I was thinking about that, sitting there that day in a warm, sunny afternoon there in Corinth, uh, studying that particular scene and thinking about what had taken place and thinking of these words, a book idea dawned on me. Someone needs to write a book. Uh, the working title would be The Ways of God. How God operates in the world. What does the Bible reveal to us about God's preferred modus operandi, his mode of operation in the world? How does he deal with the world? And one of the prime chapters would have to be on this 1 Corinthians chapter 1 passage, telling us that God delights in choosing and using the things that the world looks at and says it's nothing, it's zero, it's of no count. God delights in using those very things to accomplish his divine purposes in the world so that in the end, when it's accomplished, no human can boast. That's a fundamental principle of how God works in the world. And I was thinking about there in that Roman forum because of what had happened there 1,900 years before. According to Acts chapter 18, the apostle Paul was dragged there by an angry mob of Uh, people who were unhappy about his preaching of the gospel. They dragged them there before the Roman governor, Gallio, the Roman proconsul, who sat on top of that bema seat, that platform, looking out on the people, looking out on this uh, struggle there in the forum before them as they dragged Paul into this setting. And I was thinking about his response. Here is Gallio sitting there with all the force and authority of the Roman Empire behind him, going all the way back to Caesar Augustus. And as the case of the Apostle Paul, this little homely Jewish itinerant tent-making preacher, he considered him to be nothing. He dismissed the whole affair. He told them all to get away. He brushed the Apostle Paul aside the way you would brush aside an insect. All of the Roman Empire brushed the Apostle Paul aside. He wound up in a Roman dungeon. And from there he wound up being executed by the Emperor Nero. I found myself thinking about this truth of how God works in the world. Here was the Apostle Paul, who in the Roman Empire, the greatest force, the greatest empire, the most powerful man in the world at the time, considered to be nothing, a cipher, no account, getaway. And the irony of how it all turned out. Where is Rome today? Where are all the Caesars today? They're in the dust heap of history. Yet he was the Apostle Paul who went out and changed the world for Christ. God delights in using the things the world considers to be nothing to accomplish his divine purposes in the world. And Paul's a wonderful example of that. There's a great irony to it all, that, that way of God's working. You can see it in the Apostle Paul. I remember one of my professors in seminary commenting on that irony about the Apostle Paul and this event with Paul there in Corinth. 
And his comment was this. Today we name our dogs Nero and we name our sons Paul. I ran across this irony, a delicious irony that I love and I share it with you. It's a very obscure thing that I ran across. In 2007, there was a conference in the modern city of Corinth, which is beside the old city there in Greece. They were having a conference on the topic, the Apostle Paul in the city of Corinth. And there were a series of academic papers that were given in that conference. And then those papers were gathered and put together in a single volume. And there was an introduction to that volume that I ran across, a very obscure volume. But in this introduction, the mayor of the modern city of Corinth wrote this. I copied it down. It is too good to pass up. He said, the time has come finally for Corinth to fulfill its great debt. A spiritual debt to Paul, the apostle to all nations. The apostle that opened up the horizon of the divine revelation for the city and endowed the city with so much prestige that his presence, by his presence in Corinth, it is known today everywhere in the world, mainly through Paul's work and his extremely significant epistles to the Corinthians. How very ironic it is that God uses the things that the world considers to be nothing to turn around and accomplish the purposes that he has for the universe. Paul's a great example of that principle, but not the greatest. The greatest example of that principle is undoubtedly the one we have before us this morning, recorded in Luke chapter 2 and verses 1 through 7. So we come to this passage. It's a marvelous, a very familiar passage. As I say, perhaps the most iconic and beloved passage about Christmas because this is unique in the Gospels. None of the other Gospels record this particular series of events. So this passage of Scripture is, in effect, captured in every nativity scene you ever see. There are no other descriptions of the nativity in the Gospels but this one. And so you have captured in every nativity crash under the Christmas tree out in the park or at a store, wherever you see it, the story recorded in this, this passage that we love so much. But we need to be careful with this passage. I was struck all over again this week of going back and studying it and studying the commentaries about this passage of how much time is spent on the things that don't really matter much. Caesar Augustus, who he was, how he reigned, the nature of the Roman Empire at the time, this far-flung province out there way to the east of the Mediterranean headed in Syria, this Quinerius who sat there, this all about the census and how it unfolded over a period of years, all of that detail, none of it is worth very much, to be honest. These are all bit players in what this passage is about. What this passage is about is an event, an event that takes place in verse 7, and Mary gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in the manger. That's what this passage is about. All of this other stuff, is simply a way of telling us about that event. And what it's telling us about that event is, look, it really happened. It is an event that happened in time, space, history. It happened in a particular time. We can set that time. It happened in a particular place. It was a place called 
Bethlehem. And it happened in a particular way. The most lowly and undistinguished way that we can imagine. We need to think about that as we look at all the nativity scenes. We see them constantly. You probably have, some of you have it set up in your home right now. And think about how often we actually really sanitize that scene. The truth of the matter is, according to what Luke tells us, that was not a very sanitary scene. We sentimentalize it in ways that we probably should not because we lose something when we do. If we take what Luke actually gives us and pare away all the things that get added to it, you usually see pictures of Mary riding on a donkey from Nazareth to Bethlehem. There is no donkey recorded anywhere. There are no animals recorded here actually in the stable, whatever the stable was, a cave, some sort of a lean-to, whatever it was. We're not sure. There's no animals recorded here. What is recorded here is a young couple, Mary probably still in her middle teens. She's pregnant now in her ninth month. And she has just walked 90 miles in her ninth month of pregnancy only to come to Bethlehem and find no room. Forget the idea of the cruel innkeeper who says, no, there's no room for you. It's not that. There wasn't much space in this little village of Bethlehem for travelers, that's all. And maybe because of the census, there were more people there than than usual. When they got to Bethlehem, they could not find lodging. There was no place for them. Every place was crowded And Mary needed some space and some privacy. She was about ready to give birth. Where could she go? The only choice was to go to the stable. And there and all the typical things that you will find in the place where the animals are kept, Mary gave birth. Think of it. Young girl, first pregnancy, No experience of her own with this. No mother, no sisters, no aunts, no other women around who knew what was going on here could help her, encourage her, support her. Nothing but her unexperienced husband in a stable. And she gives birth. And it would have been, as we all know, a messy affair. Till finally she's able to take that newborn baby and wrap that baby in these strips of cloth, probably still bloody, and lay him in the feeding trough of the animals. There is a grittiness to that account. We ought not sanitize it. Why? Because we lose something when we do. Remember, we are looking here at the ultimate example of God's way of working in the world. He takes the lowly, the things that are nothing, the most that seem the most inconsequential. And he uses them to accomplish his purposes in the world. And we do not want to undermine our understanding of the loneliness of this event. It comes from plucking this 
set of verses, verses 1 through 7, out of their context. That's what happens when we sanitize this. We need to let this be what it is, these seven verses. But in order for us to really understand what's going on, we need to focus on that verse 7. See it for what it is, but also maintain it in its context. Because without its context, if all you have is these seven verses, you really don't have very much. What you have is events within the Roman Empire. The cogs of the empire were turning, grinding out this census. And in this far-flung place, it meant that this young couple had because of the demands of Rome to make the journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem where this young girl gives birth in this difficult circumstance. That's what you have. And you have no glimmer in this seven verses of what God is doing in and through the birth of this child. That's why we must not take this, these seven verses as much as we love them and appreciate them. We never want to see them outside their context. What context? Well, <laughs> there is more context here than we can cover. Just take what comes before it. We're reading in chapter 2 what happens in chapter 1. The angel comes to Mary and explains to her exactly what's going to happen to her and explain to her what that means. And we hear Mary's response and her wonderful magnificent, her magnificent response and obedience to the, the call of God upon her life. We have all of that information by the time we get to chapter 2. And what happens immediately after this? We go out into the fields where there are the, the shepherds are guarding their sheep and the heavens open up and the angels come and announce to them what has just happened. And we see the significance of this lowly event announced from heaven itself to the angels. We could go out further than that, the context of all of the Gospel of Luke, or for that matter, all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all of which tell us about this event and give us this information. I'm in the process of doing some research right now for something I'm writing that prompted me to do something I'd never done before. And I really suggest, if you're into this kind of thing, if you do this kind of Bible study, to do this for yourself. Pull out your con concordance of the, of the Bible and look up the word fulfill, the English word fulfill, or versions of a fulfilled, or the various forms of the verb fulfill. And trace those occurrences through the four Gospels. And what you discover, what becomes revealed when you pull those out one after another, is constant references to the divine plan within which the event of verse 7 is to be found. There is a detailed divine plan announced centuries before through the prophets that unfolds all through the Gospels, having to do with Jesus' birth, his life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, his exaltation, one after another places where we are told, and such and such happened in order to fulfill what was written by Jeremiah the prophet, or to fulfill what was said by Isaiah the prophet, or in the case of Bethlehem, what was to fulfill what was said by the prophet Micah, that out of the small town of Bethlehem would come the Messiah of Israel. That context is what we need. 
this detailed sense of, of God's plan that he is orchestrating, directing from heaven through what had been prophesied beforehand or in some cases directly in the moment by the angel of the Lord who comes and, for example, says to Joseph, take your family to Egypt. There are people who want to kill the child. Or who again comes to Joseph in Egypt and says you can go back to Nazareth now because it's safe. Here is heaven itself uh, orchestrating and choreographing this, this plan, this detailed plan, most of it prophesied centuries before. God's design, the plan, his timing, everything about the life of Jesus. It is this birth that is embedded in that plan. And when we see that plan, we begin to understand ever more fully what it is God is doing to accomplish his purposes through this gritty, insignificant event. Or we can go even further. Do you realize how much more we know about what this all meant than Mary and Joseph did? Or the shepherds listening to the, to the angels? We know vastly more because of the apostles. Who are the apostles? The Greek word for send is apostello. The apostles are the sent ones, handpicked by the Lord Jesus and sent out into the world to preach and teach about him. Tell us everything we need to know about who he is, who it was who was born in that manger scene in that first Christmas morning. As we listen to those apostles, our minds are just blown away in understanding what it is we're looking at there laying in that feeding trough, in that stable. Listen to the Apostle Paul in Colossians 1, for example. Tell us about the divine Son of God, the second person of the Godhead, who he says is the creator of all things. Say, wait, don't we say in the creed when we, we say the Apostles' Creed, I believe in God the Father, maker of heaven and earth. Yes, we do. But who was it through whom the Father created all things? It was the Son, as Paul says there in Colossians chapter 1. It was through whom all things were made. The second person of the Godhead. The Gospel of John in chapter 1 pounds the pulpit about this, actually. It is he, the Son, who created all things, John says. In fact, he reemphasizes there is not anything that exists that he didn't create. This is the Son, the creator of all things, the sustainer of all things, the one who holds all things together by his word. That's who the Son is. He's the one who calls things into being and shapes them into what they are. And apart from the effects of sin, everything in the universe is the way it is because of the word of the Son. If he were to withdraw that word, all the creation would suddenly vanish. He is the one that upholds everything that exists. Not only that, Paul says, he's the goal of all things. Everything is for him. Everything is, is sort of groaning toward him and fulfillment in the Son. Here is this divine Son of God who is the creator of all things, the sustainer of all things, the goal of all things. He is the one, Philippians 2, who Paul says, did not think the glory of heaven was something to be grasped, but instead he was willing to be obedient to the, to the Father and to let go of that glory and to come down and humble himself, be willing to be born of a woman, take upon himself human flesh in this grittiest of all moments. 
in order to be able to give himself for us and for the world. To die a death on a Roman cross so that he might redeem us, redeem the race, redeem a people for himself, ultimately to redeem the entire universe. First Corinthians 15, one day the sun, when it is all finished and the kingdom is complete, the sun will hand the kingdom back now in its redeemed form to the Father. All of these things we learn about who this is who was laying there in that, that stable. And it is in the light of that context that we must understand this particular event. We have the context of the entire gospel in effect. Say, what is the gospel? The gospel. Well, you can expand it or distill it down into its very essence. Probably the tightest definition of what the gospel is is found in 1 Corinthians 15 from the Apostle Paul, where he says, Here is the gospel I preached to you and what I first received and in which you stand. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and rose again for. Here is his thumbnail sketch of what the gospel is. Or you can flesh out that gospel and fill it with much of the rest of what the Bible says all the way out to the entire testimony of the Bible. And since the gospel is large as the Bible from cover to cover, it is God's eternal plan. It's his story, his account of what the Father is doing through his son-centered plan, focused on what his son has done, is doing, and will yet do to redeem the world for himself. From cover to cover, the Bible is the gospel. That is the ultimate context in which we need to see verse 7, this event. Forget Rome. It looks there in the passage as if Rome is the one engineering uh, this couple. No, They were in that lonely place by God's design. And he was the one who was coordinating and orchestrating that event so that his son might be born, the divine son of God who humbled himself to take upon himself a human flesh so that he might be able to give himself on our behalf. This is the wonderful story of Christmas. It's what we celebrate. And what we must not ever do is to allow this beautiful passage that is so treasured by all of us to be plucked from its context and sentimentalized into some sort of a Christmas nativity scene, all sanitized, and we find ourselves focused on the sort of the homespun story of this woman and her son. No. Remember God's way of working in the world. He delights in using the things that are small, nondescript, nothing in the world's eyes to accomplish his his purpose in the world. And the greatest example of that at all is what we discover in verse 7. This is what we celebrate at Christmas when we gather and do what we did this morning, what we will be doing all through this season. Joining with one another 
in recognizing what we're looking at when we look at that baby lying in a manger, joining with one another in those wonderful words of Charles Wesley. Hark the herald angels sing, listen to what he says. We look at that baby lying in the manger and we cry out with the generations that have gone before us, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail, incarnate deity. A child is born. You know, one of the strange things about this whole account, top to bottom, of what God is doing in Christ from his lowly birth to his glory in heaven. One of the strange things about that is recorded in John chapter 1 when, when John says of his coming that he came into the world and the world didn't know him. The creator came into the world, made himself a part of the world, stepped into the stage of human history, and the world didn't recognize him. C.S. Lewis uh, likens it to uh, the author of a play. Finally, in the midst of the play, stepping onto the stage as one of the characters. And what happens? Well, John says he came into the world. The world didn't recognize him. He came into his own, his own people. And his own people, they didn't receive him either. But to as many as received him, to them he gives the power to become the sons of God. You know, that latter category, I assume, is uh, the people gathered here this morning. Most of you are here before in Christmas, in this Christmas service, because you're interested in worshiping and adoring the Lord Jesus Christ. You have received him. You have recognized him for who and what he is, this baby laying in the manger. You see him as the son of God who took upon himself flesh to save you. And he is now your savior. You bowed at the foot of his cross, received his forgiveness, and has set out to serve him now as your Lord. You receive the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why you're here today. Is it possible there is someone here who doesn't fit that category, though? You're here for who knows why. Maybe you're watching live stream. This is what you're supposed to do at Christmas, I suppose. But you're not really into this religious stuff at Christmas. You like the other trappings, giving of gifts. But all this Christmas stuff, you don't know about that. Call the whole thing into question. Maybe you don't even like it. You're skeptical about it, you say. I'm going to finish with a story. It's a story I ran across years ago. I have no idea where or when. I have no recollection. But I pulled it out one year early on, probably 25 years ago now, and I pulled it out of my files, and uh, as part of our, a Christmas chapel across the street, I read this story to the students. And the students were so taken by it that thereafter, every single year, that I was at the college, they would come to me and say, Dr. Litvin, would you do a public reading of that story again? And I did. This is that story. He was a kind man. He wasn't a Scrooge. 
He was a decent and mostly good man. He was loving to his family and upright in his dealings with other people. The problem was that he simply did not believe all that nonsense people talked about at Christmas. It didn't make sense, all this business about God becoming a baby born in a manger, and he was too honest to pretend otherwise. He just couldn't swallow the Christmas story. Why would God ever want or need to become a human being? I really am sorry to disappoint you, he told his wife that Christmas Eve, but I'm not going to church with you tonight. I'd feel like a hypocrite. But he told his family he was happy for them to go if they liked, and he would wait up for them. And so he stayed home that Christmas Eve while his family went to the midnight Christmas Eve service without him. Snow had been falling all evening, and shortly after the, the family drove off, the man went to the window. The flurries were becoming heavier now, and it looked as if the temperature was dropping. So he turned to his fireside chair and settled in to read his newspaper. Minutes later, he was startled by a a thudding sound, and then another. He thought at first it was someone throwing something against the window, but when he went to the door to investigate, he found a flock of birds huddled miserably in the snow. They had been caught in the snowstorm, and in a desperate search for shelter, they tried to fly through his large picture window. I can't let them just lie there and freeze, he thought. Pausing for a moment, he considered what to do. He remembered the barn where his children stabled their pony. That would provide a warm shelter if he could manage somehow to direct the birds into it. Quickly, he put on his coat and boots and tramped through the snow to the barn. And there he opened the doors wide and turned on the light. But the birds didn't move. They wouldn't come to the barn. Another man at this stage might well have left the birds to their plight. Figuring he had done what he could, he had made this shelter available. If the birds didn't want it, he had done all he could do. But this was a man of genuine compassion, and so he paused again to consider the problem. Maybe food would entice them in, he thought to himself. Hurrying back to his house, he gathered up some scraps. Outdoors again, he sprinkled the crumbs on the snow, making a trail to the open doorway of the barn. But to his dismay, the birds, in their distress, ignored the scraps and continued to flutter around helplessly in the snow. Frustrated, the man tried catching them. That didn't work. Tried shooing them, chasing them into the barn, by dancing around and waving his arms. But instead, the birds just scattered in every direction except into the warm barn. Finally, the essence of the problem hit him. He wanted to help them, but the birds were too senseless to understand. They did not even know what they needed, much less that he was there to help them. To them, he thought, I'm just a strange, terrifying creature. If only I could think of some way to let them know that they can trust me, that I only want to help them. But how could he do that? Any move he made only frightened and confused them more. They were dying, but still they would not follow and they would not take his direction. With no awareness of what was coming, the man said to himself, if only I could become a bird, I could join them there in the snow and speak their language and tell them not to be afraid 
and show them the way into the barn. He paused with only the darkness and the falling snow hiding the uncertain look on his face. And then he continued courageously, but also more slowly. But that would mean I would have to become one of them so that they could see and hear and understand. At that moment, the church bells began to ring again. The music of Christmas reached the man's ears above the sound of the wind, and he stood motionless, frozen, not by the cold, but by something else. And then, as the bells pealed the good news of Christ's birth, the man sank to his knees in the snow. I can't ever tell that story without being moved by it all over again. Ever. We are the beneficiaries of the willingness of God to become one of us so that he might lead us into the barn to show us the way to provide our salvation. That's the meaning of this child laying there in that manger scene. We must never forget that. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ for his willingness to become one of us, to humble himself, the divine son, the creator, sustainer, the goal of it all, to leave the courts of heaven and to become one of us, humbled, permitting himself to be murdered on a Roman cross for our sakes, to show us the way. We thank you for him, it is him, in your divine plan that we celebrate here this Christmas. Help us to see the full range of what happened. What happened there in the birth of that little baby and what you were doing through it all. We thank you that you delight in using the things that the world considers to be nothing to accomplish your purposes in the world. That you have chosen us to be a part of your kingdom. You have shown us the wisdom and the truth and given us the opportunity to receive your son so as to become one of your children. We thank you all over again this Christmas for your grace and your mercy and your generosity in giving us the gift of your son in whose name we pray. Amen and amen.